Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Deep love and appreciation to all of you who are joining me today. And welcome back for those of you who have been following this podcast for a while. When we face seemingly insurmountable obstacles in life, how do we keep going? Our guest today is a true superhuman whose incredible story may inspire us all. With only one functioning lung, a prognosis of 14 days to live, and being in a medically induced coma for a year, Sean Swarner is the first cancer survivor to stand on top of the world, Mount Everest. Sean has broken through everything we were told about human limitations and redefined the way the world views success. Sean was diagnosed with two deadly, different, and unrelated forms of cancer, once at the age of 13 and again at the age of 16. After an incredibly poor prognosis and being read his last rites, Sean astonished the medical community when he survived both diseases. He realized that after defeating cancer twice, no challenge would ever be too great and no peak too high. As the first cancer survivor to scale Mount Everest, Sean decided to continue climbing and has since topped the highest peaks in Africa, Europe, South America, Australia, Antarctica, and North America, thus completing the seven summits. Upon skiing to both the South and the North Poles, Sean completed the Explorer's Grand Slam. With the completion of the Ironman World Championship in Hawaii, Sean is the only person in history to accomplish these superhuman feats. Sean continues to defy the odds, test his own endurance, and inspire and motivate people around the world, sharing his message of hope. Sean also serves as a source of inspiration as the founder of the nonprofit organization, the Cancer Climber Association, the protagonist of the documentary True North, as well as a motivational speaker around the globe and as the author of the books, Keep Climbing, How I Beat Cancer and Reach the Top of the World and Being Unstoppable, Conquering Your Everest. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Sean, it is such a pleasure to have you as a guest on the Superhumanized podcast today. Welcome. I appreciate it. And as, a, as you were doing the intro, I was thinking to myself, maybe I am a little crazy, like people say. <laughs> <laughs> we need more of this good kind of crazy in the world, Sean. And as I also mentioned in the intro, you have overcome incredible odds. And for those people in the audience who are not yet acquainted with you, I'd love for you to give us some of your backstory because uh, the pivotal turning point in your life actually came when you were very young, when most people are dealing with completely different topics in their lives. You were just 13 years old. Can you give us the backstory? 
I think there are so many pivotal points in my life. And I think every day could potentially be a pivotal point. But I think the biggest one, the first one, I would say the first one, because I recently got married. That's a pivotal point too. <laughs> Congratulations. Wonderful. So I would say the first pivotal point that I can remember, the big one, is when I was, I was 13 years old, I was diagnosed with advanced stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma. And the doctors essentially gave me a, an expiration date of three months. And they told my first, my parents, hey, your firstborn son's only going to have three months to live. So I remember very clearly how all my friends at the time, and everybody's been there, 13 years old, eighth grade, getting ready to go into high school, was worried about being popular. Everyone's worried about the nicest clothes, the nicest hairstyles, how they look, all the impressions that they're going to give on people. I literally went to bed night after night, terrified to close my eyes because I didn't know if they would open up the next day. So I grew up with a completely different perspective than most people. And I was not concerned one bit with the popular crowds. I wasn't concerned one bit with clothes that I was wearing to school. Did I want to look good? Yeah, but was it a priority? No, living was a priority. Fighting for my life was a priority. Making sure my family stayed together during the times when I was going through the treatments and vomiting 36 hours, that was a priority. So my health and wellness was a priority. So I think even now I have a different set of lenses. I, I see life just completely differently than most people. I don't get caught up in, do I want the nice cars? Absolutely. I want the Audi RA. I love that. I have my dream set on reaching, I have a 55 foot solar powered yacht that I, that's something that's a goal, Is but it's not something I, that's going to change my life. It's not going to change who I am because so many people think those exterior things are going to make them feel happy when you have to look in the mirror and that's who's going to make you happy. It's not the stuff. Right. And I know so many people who they bought their second house, third house, so maybe they're on their third or fourth marriage and their children hate them. They can't figure it out. But I can tell you, there, there's one common denominator there and all those stories that I just mentioned, it's the person going through it. So I learned at a young age, in fact, Waking up one morning, I remember seeing a ton of hair on my pillow and running to the bathroom when I was 60 pounds overweight and the patches of bald spots and hair sticking out. It's just, I looked like a troll. I didn't even recognize who I was looking at in the mirror. I had nothing. And later on, it, this boggled my mind and it makes me emotional every time I think about it. But for the three months leading up to when my hair eventually did all come out, while I was in the shower, my mom came in, she snuck into the bedroom and took the pillowcase off and replaced it with a fresh one so I wouldn't see my hair falling out. That's, that, was, that, that just was amazing to hear that. And when you're so, so young, because you're talking about a period of time, I think, which was after a very aggressive treatment, you were given three months to live when you had the diagnosis with the Hodgkin's lymphoma. I think this is something also your parents kept from you at first, right? And uh, basically, you and your family just took it day by day. And the treatment caused you, because you went, I heard that you in another podcast, you went on to all-you-can-eat diet. So you gained a lot of weight, you survived. And then, of course, you had very aggressive chemo treatment. How do you deal with that when you're 13? You're still, we all are, in a sense, trying to find out who we are in the context of the world and how to live with coming at us in life. How do you deal with this? How do you survive this mentally when you're just 13 years old? Is that something that was always innate in you? Was it the family that surrounded you? Or did you get to that at some point so young? Yeah, I, I Honestly, I think, and that's a great question. I think it goes back to when I was probably five or six years old, I started competitive swimming. 
Every time I touched the wall, it was, it started off a 25 meter breaststroke and then a 50 meter breaststroke back and forth. And every time when I was younger, I finished the lap or whatever it would be, the event, mom and dad, one of them was always there pulling, helping me get out of the water, pulling me out of the water. And they asked me two questions. Did you have fun? And did you do, they never looked over at the person who won and said, why didn't you beat Jimmy or whoever it might be? What happened was over time, I learned what my parents were trying to teach me was I never had to be the best. I had to be my best. And it was, it's, it planted that seed when I started becoming the best. I still never compared myself to others. And when I, every time I got in the water, my goal wasn't to beat the person next to me. My goal was to beat my time from last meet to constantly improve myself. So I think that really helped me when I was going through the treatments because when I was going through the good days, I enjoyed every moment and I tried to push myself a little bit better than the last time I felt good. When I had the bad days, I let them go. And there were numerous ones. But I also learned when I was 13, I learned something that I learned from the swimming. I, would, I visualized myself going back and forth the water. And every time I got behind the block, I would swing my arms back and forth, put my goggles on my face, but I would picture myself coming in first and I would see myself doing the race. How, I knew how many strokes it took to get to the other end. So if my goggles fell off, I could probably count 26, 27. Okay, reach, turn. And I visualized myself swimming and coming in first place numerous times. And I, I took that information and that skill set into battling the cancer, where when I had those bad days, I would visualize myself again back in the water, swimming back and forth. So when I had good days, I was in the present moment. When I had horrible days, I was visualizing myself with an emotional attachment to the end result of what I wanted for myself in the future. Yes. Visualization is such a huge tool and to have the presence and the tenacity and power of mind to do that so young, that really is amazing. You said something that's such key lesson and what a gift that your parents imparted it on you, that to compare yourself to nobody else, but just do the best, be the best you can be. Where when we compare ourselves to others, there's always going to be somebody that's smarter, younger, faster, richer, <laughs> whatnot than we are. But it's about becoming, being the best we, the best version of ourselves we can be. And once we realize that and embrace that, I really believe there's nothing that we can't do. And somebody such as yourself, for me, is a testimony to that. All of these amazing challenges you've put yourself through, the athletic challenges, I also want to touch upon those. But before that, I'd like to recap real quick. So you went into remission after fighting Hodgkin's lymphoma at just 13 years old. And then just within a few years or just within a year, you were diagnosed with cancer again. A year and a half of chemotherapy for the first cancer. I was in remission for about a year the second time and going in for a checkup for the first cancer, they found a second cancer that was completely unrelated. So I've had two primary cancers that were unrelated. And apparently I'm the only person who's ever had both of these. So when I was diagnosed with the second one, The doctors had no idea what was going to happen. They literally told my parents this time around, I had an expiration date of 14 days. I, after I was maybe 20 something, when I was in college, I did the calculations and looked at the fact that no one's ever had these two cancers, the type of prognosis I had, the chances of me surviving both of those cancers was equivalent to winning the lottery four times in a row with the same numbers. It's just, you're looking at a living, breathing, walking miracle. I mean, that, that's the only way to put it. Yeah. yeah. 
But 14 days turned into 15 days, turned into 16 days. I had a thoracotomy. They cracked open my ribs, removed the tumor. I had to, essentially had to learn to breathe again. And because of the radiation therapy that was bombarded through my right chest, I only have one functioning lung because there's so much scar tissue on my right side. And you just said it. It's like winning the lottery four times in the row. One could almost say that you had the unluckiest luck. So when people are faced with such traumatic events in their life and they pull through your fighter, how do you, when the second time this happened to you, how did you pull through and keep fighting and not just crawl up in a ball and say, this is it, I'm done fighting. If I told you I was positive all the time, if I told you I was this bundle of joy all the time, I would be lying. I'm not. And I was. Were there times when I wanted to give up? Absolutely. But I didn't. I just knew that the bad times would pass. So the second time I heard that I had cancer, my instant thought was, oh God, here we go. I didn't want to do it. I knew my life was going to be in pause. I knew I was going to lose my friends. I knew I wasn't going to be able to go to school. I knew my whole my body was going to be changing. I, I knew everything that I went through the first time. I didn't want to do it again, but I had no choice. I take that back. I did have a choice. I had two choices. I could fight for my life or I could give up and die. And I chose to fight. What made you choose that? I think it was because if looking back at it, I would have to say it was probably because of one of my personal core values. I did it because in all honesty, I pictured my parents. I, so in my family, it's my mom, my dad, and my brother. And a number of times I pictured what their lives would be like if I wasn't around, how it would impact them and how devastating it would be on them, having my mom and dad try to recover, my brother trying to recover from a death of a family member like that. And I think that's what pushed me forward, to be honest with you. So in a nutshell, it was love. I would say so, yeah, love for my family. And another thing that comes to mind, so the one thing is to fight, to decide, to choose to fight. The other thing is, did you at some point lose trust in life, as in what could come next after experience, or do you have an in innate trust in life? How did I, these experiences affect you? I think like anybody who's, who potentially might be going through cancer, you can sit there and ask yourself that question, why me, a thousand times. Un unless you're smoking a pack of cigarettes a day, you probably know why you got throat cancer. That, <laughs> you can understand why that happened. But for the majority of people who get cancer, you can sit there and ask, why me, over and over again and never come up with an answer. So at, I did the same thing. But then I realized, you know, what the facts were, it was me. And why not me? And what am I going to do about it? Because asking that question, why me, would never give me the answers that I was looking for. So I had to go inside myself again and realize that it was me and I was going to do something about it. Again, I had no choice. In every situation, you do have a choice, but I didn't give myself a choice. So I pushed myself forward again, just slowly, one step at a time. It wasn't, it wasn't where I got diagnosed and then all of a sudden I was, there's a long process. There's a long journey that I went through of self-discovery, of challenges, of overcoming challenges, of physically, spiritually, everything. I do remember I was and I'm sure we'll get to this, but when I was training for Everest, I was in New York City when 9-11 happened. I remember seeing the planes hit and I was talking to a guy who was asking me about my, um, and he looked at me and said something like, how can you believe in God with everything you've been through? I was like, what are you talking about? I was like, how can you believe in a God that would do someone, do something like that to someone? And I looked at him and said, I'm alive. How could I not? I love that. 
Yeah, it's it's so unfathomable, the fights you went through. And like you said, it forged you. I mean, it defined you mentally, physically, and spiritually. And it would have been so easy to give up, not only while you were going through fighting the, the cancer, but also later in life. But instead, you went into endurance sports. And you just mentioned it. Your first challenge was climbing Mount Everest. <laughs> what did your family and loved ones say when you, first of all, how did you come up with that idea? Okay, I'm going to climb and it's going to be Everest. And then what did your family say? I honestly, to put it in a nutshell, I was working for my master's and my doctorate in psychology. I wanted to be a psychologist for cancer patients because as we all know, cancer is not an individual disease. The whole family goes through it. And if you don't have family, you have your support system, whatever it might be. And I wanted to offer that support to not only the patient, but the families as well. But I hadn't dealt with my own issues. You know, I, I went to the first cancer, 13, second cancer, 16, and then I went to college. I just I relived my high school years. I turned into Belushi from Animal House. I turned into a party animal, had a wonderful time. But then I decided, okay, I need to figure out what cancer meant to me because you can't just go through something and not really talk about it or figure it out or look at how it impacted you or what scar, what emotional scars you might have from something traumatic. So that was when I took the long, hard looks, the proverbial looks and the literal looks in the mirror, asking myself questions like, who are you? What do you want? Because night after night, I went to bed not knowing if I was going to wake up the next morning. So my future literally was the next day, not 10 years from now. I had no concept of the future. So when I finally started developing this idea and this concept of the future, I thought, okay, there's no way I could deal with cancer patients every day. And that was a selfish decision because I wouldn't be able to handle emotionally because I would get too wrapped up in what they were doing and I wouldn't be able to lose, be able to handle losing any patients. But I knew that I had been given the mind-body connection because a year after I was placed in remission, I, I ran in my high school's league track meet and won the 800 meter run. So I figured, okay, I have something. I've been blessed with a bright brain and a body that can keep up with it. And I did some research and I just kept thinking bigger and I wanted to use, literally utilize the highest platform in the world to scream hope. And logically, it came up that Mount Everest was the highest platform in the world. And I moved to Colorado from Jacksonville, Florida, started training, and then literally 10 months later, went over to Nepal and became the first cancer survivor to climb Everest. And I got to interject here, Sean, because usually it takes people years to prepare for that climb. You prep for this climb in nine months with only one functioning lung. Your body has been through tremendous challenges in, in, in the years before. How did you prepare for this? And actually, what was the advice your doctors gave you? Well, the advice, my doctors, friends, family. I remember leaving Jacksonville. My parents lived in Hilton Head, South Carolina. And my brother and I were both going to drive out because he was going to be my base camp coordinator. He, per, the timing was perfect. He literally just graduated college, fresh out of school. Oh, sure, Sean, young and adventurous. I'll join you. I'd love to. So he came with me. And I remember telling our parents that we were going to be climbing Everest or heading to Nepal. And I, as we were driving out, I will never forget, clear as day, I'm hugging my dad goodbye. And he leans over in my ear and whispers, not whispers, but he tells me, we didn't get you through two cancers to go kill yourself on a hunk of rock and ice. I looked at him. My, my parents have always told me what they thought in my ideas. 
but they also always supported me. So my brother and I moved out to Colorado where I am now, and we literally lived out of the back of my Honda Civic and we camped for two or three months before we even found a place to live. I was trying to reach out to corporations for sponsorship. My office was a library and a payphone, but I remember doing something every day of my life for those, for those nine, 10 months when I was trading. And I would work myself up to eventually carrying a hundred pounds of rocks in my backpack, 18 miles round trip up Long's Peak, which is 14,256 feet. And I would do that once a week because I, I knew that I, I had to, knew that consistency was more important than intensity. And I knew that I had to continue doing something every day to train my body if I was going to make it in time and get my body and my mind in shape in 10 months to go climb the highest mountain of the world. So the one thing is imagining and prepping yourself in your mind to scale Mount Everest. And of course, this is something you've been very adept at ever since you were very young, as you shared with us a little while ago. But so the one thing is seeing that in your mind's eye, how did you feel when you actually for the first time saw Everest? I think I was <laughs> two, two things. I was overwhelmed and excited. And I looked at it and I was like, oh my God, it's a, that's a big mountain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a couple of things, like I said, I was excited and I was scared at the same time. But I honestly, I, looking back at it, I had no idea what I was really getting into. That was probably a good thing, right? Probably, yeah. And then I remember when I was at Camp 4. So there are four camps on the south side where I went up. And I was doing some, I guess, I was part of an experiment or a study. I was part of a study with Brown University. And I radioed down to my brother when I was at Camp 4 getting ready to go for the summit that night. And there's a lady from Brown University when I radioed to my, when I radioed to my brother. And I said, holy crap, Seth, this mountain's huge. And then she looked at Seth and she said, didn't he do his research before he came here? <laughs> but I was just joking because I knew it was big. And I just, I try to use humor to offset the, uh, the anxiety sometimes. Yes, that's the best remedy for sure. And you mentioned that you made it on the first attempt. Obviously, you were very well prepped and your mindset you were completely, you were there, you were doing this. The other thing is, I'd love for you to share this. There was also a little bit of, depends on how you look on it. Some people would call it bad luck because you had an incident, but that incident actually made sure you were able to climb to the summit. And it had something to do with a condition of your brain that can happen at high <laughs> altitude. It also might explain a lot now. I was up at Camp 3, roughly... 24, 25,000 feet, and I started suffering altitude-induced swelling of the brain, or it's called high-altitude cerebral edema. And that's and really pretty dangerous, right? Really dangerous. And the only cure, literally, is to go down and be surrounded by what's called a gamma bag, where they increase the pressure to decrease the relative atmospheric pressure 2,000 feet. But it, I woke up one In fact, I remember going to bed that night, and I ate dehydrated beef stew. There was the spiral noodles, the green peas, the orange cubed carrots, and the just the chunks of meat. And I remember eating that around six, maybe 6.30. Sun went down. I went to sleep and I woke up in the morning, 10 or maybe 11, 12 hours later, and I had to vomit. I, I, I unzipped the tent as, quick as quickly as I could. I vomited out whatever was in my stomach and I could still see those cubed carrots, the green peas, the beef chunk, and the spiral noodles. 
meaning my stomach was not functioning at all. My body was shutting down. My brain was telling the blood to move to the move from my appendages to surround my vital organs. And that's like a safety mechanism that your body goes through when, it, when you're up in altitude and you get cold. So I slept, I, was, I just rested there on oxygen all day. I slept on oxygen that night and went up the day later. But everybody who was at Camp 3, who was on the same schedule that we were on to go from Camp 3 to Camp 4 and then summit that later that night, they left when I physically couldn't move. While they were up there, bad weather came in, came in and pushed them all off the mountain. So they missed their opportunity to, to summit Mount Everest. I woke up, like I said, a couple of days later, feeling 100% better. Stormed up to Camp 3, rested at Camp 3 or Camp 4, and went from Camp 4 to the summit. And if I wouldn't have had that high-altitude cerebral edema, I would have gone up on schedule with everyone else and not summited. So going back to what you said earlier, I think I have the world's worst good luck. Because I went through the first camp. They, they wouldn't have found the first cancer if it wasn't for a knee injury. Yeah. Wouldn't have found the second cancer if it wasn't for the first cancer. And also something that I don't think I've ever mentioned before, but I had my Hickman catheter pulled early, which is a permanent IV. With that, I couldn't swim. So I had it pulled early so I could get back in the water and swim. I was in a car accident where if I had that tube there where the seatbelt was, I probably would have bled internally to death. And going up, there's so many other things, but going up Everest, if it wasn't for the altitude-induced swelling of the brain, I wouldn't have made the summit. May I rephrase this? You have the world's best, worst, <laughs> best, worst luck. It's the bad luck laced with silver linings and ultimate achieving what you want. And I've actually mentioned, um, you know, because I, I travel a lot for keynote presentations and I work with a lot of corporations. And there was one time when I was traveling, I think it, I, it was with a guy who was the VP of sales for Guinness. And he asked me some questions. And all of a sudden he goes, I don't want to be in this plane with you. I was like, but look who you're sitting next to. What's going to happen is if we go down, the plane is going to crash and we're all going to walk away. <laughs> Here you are after that bout of really good bad luck with the brain swelling. And there you are. And you're on top of Mount Everest. What goes through your head? What do you feel, especially with everything that you have uh, in, as your backstory? What goes through my mind was, mm -hmm. oh, my God, I have to go back down. <laughs> but initially when I got up there, it, one thing that kept pushing me, because a lot of people don't understand how long it takes to climb Everest. I got the base camp April 8th and I summited May 6th. We're talking almost a month and a half on the mountain going up and down. And the entire time I was climbing, I had a flag that had names of people touched by cancer. And on the bottom, it said dedicated to all those affected by cancer in this small world, keep climbing. And it was always folded up in my chest pocket close to my heart as a constant reminder of why I was on the mountain, why I was doing what I was doing. Those last steps I took to the summit, I took the flag out and wrapped it around the top of the world. That's why I did what I did. I literally collapsed to my knees, put my hand in my face, and I started crying. Keep Climbing is also the title of your book. Right. And it is at the core of your mission. Like you said, this is also what motivated you embrace one of the biggest challenges on earth, uh, which is climbing a mountain such as Everest. Once you had achieved that, most of us would ask ourselves, okay, how are you top climbing Everest? You just kept topping that and overcoming. Kept climbing. <laughs> kept climbing. You did the seven summits on all the different continents, right? Correct. Yep. Highest mountain every continent and took a flag to the top of each one of those continents that has names of people touched by cancer. 
And then you also did a fun little thing called the Hawaii Ironman Triathlon. Yeah, the, wor- the World Championship Ironman Triathlon in Hawaii, I think was a technical term. And I think when I did it, it was the Ford World Ford Ironman World Championship or something like that, because it was sponsored by Ford. And I remember seeing that on the television when I was going through my first cancer and I told myself, and I promised myself, if I got better, I was going to finish that race. Amazing. And for those who in the audience who didn't catch my irony or sarcasm here, the little thing, <laughs> one of the hardest endeavors you can get into as far as comp- endurance competition goes. <laughs> it's a two, 2.4 mile ocean swim, 112 mile bike ride, and then you finish with a marathon. And I think I recall you saying in another interview that you really enjoyed yourself. I loved it. I loved it. Compared to, <laughs> compared to everything else, I honestly, I thought that was easy. Yes. And in addition, you also skied the South and North Poles. The highest mountain of every continent, the seven summits and the two poles combined. That's called the Explorer's Grand Slam. Uh-huh. Which I, I know I, I've said it before, but I didn't name it. And I think it sounds like a Denny's breakfast platter. and you also the flag with the cancer survivors that was something you took with you to each of these challenges right correct correct in the north pole we had a flag that was probably six and a half maybe seven feet wide or long and probably five four and a half five feet high and it spelled out the word hope and we had thousands and thousands of people touched by cancer on the flag That's beautiful. Something that really shines through, that comes through you so much is that I I get the sense that you don't see so much the problems or a challenge, but things as an opportunity and you just grasp them head on. There are no obstacles, only opportunities. Where does this attitude, where does the endurance that comes with it? Where does that come from? I think it comes from being more afraid of not living than I am of dying. Because today might be my last day on earth. I could, I know you can't see behind me, but I'm in my office. There's a glass wall right here and there are 14 or 15 steps going downstairs. I could get done with this interview, walk down those steps, trip on something. Who knows? I'm not paying attention. Break my neck. It probably won't happen. You knock on wood, it won't. So I'm more concerned about living every day to the fullest and in, in enjoying every moment I have. And I think it's something we can all learn to do if we're just mindful of what we value most. And what we value most isn't necessarily what media tells us to value. People on television, on the radio, on social media, they're posting things and you're comparing yourself to what somebody who has a million followers on Instagram has. That's great for that person. What about you? What do you want? What do you value? Don't idolize someone because of what they have. Idolize someone because of their values. And if you want to adopt, uh, adapt, uh, adopt. If you want to adopt those personal core values into your life, then that's great. But don't go after things that have no meaning. Define what is meaningful for you and then go after it. Absolutely. With all the power that you have. You use your power, you, your purpose to help others. I mentioned it before, you founded the Cancer Climber Association. And I know you're just prepping for the next adventure with regards to that. Can you tell us a little bit more 
about this. Absolutely. I this is I this is a trip I do every year as a fundraiser for the Cancer Climber Association. We actually we pay for a survivor's trip, all costs, and then it's the responsibility of that survivor to raise funds for next year's survivor. So paying it forward and keeping it in the cancer family. This year we raised, last year we raised enough to take two survivors this year. And I'm hoping with those two survivors, we can take three next year and then work it up to maybe 15 survivors every year for free. Because I love seeing the transformation that people go through from that, oh shit moment when they see the, when they see how big the mountain is to that confidence when they get to the top of the mountain. And everyone's in tears. Everyone's in, is incredibly emotional. And people always come up and they say, thank you so much for getting me here. And my response is always, I didn't get you here. So there's a difference between inspiration and motivation. That doesn't last. Empowerment does. So if you can empower someone to help them believe in themselves, you've changed someone's life. If you've inspired them for whatever, five days, you've made a dent, but I want to have an impact on people's lives. And we do it every year as a fundraiser, like I said, and this will be my 21st trip to Kilimanjaro. And going back to values, meaning, purpose, and passion, the average success rate of the mountain for every group on the mountain is 48%. So 52 people out of 100 don't make it. My groups are at 98% success rate double the average. And I think it's because of what we do on the mountain and how differently we do it. Because we help people tap into their core values. We help them tap into a deeper purpose. And then that that translates into their lives. So everybody I've taken to the summit, I still get messages from them. But 20 years years ago, saying how much has changed their lives. So we do a seven-day trip and then we do a four-day safari to the Serengeti. And anyone can go on the trip. Don't get me wrong. It's not just, just four people who are touched by cancer. Anyone can go. But we also add names to a flag of hope going up Kilimanjaro. And if you want to add a name, it's www.kili, like K-I-L-I, Kilimanjaro, www.kilihope.com. And that'll direct you to a website where you can actually add names to the flag. And what we do is we print that that list out, we take that list with us, and we bring the flag, and we all take turns using a Sharpie, handwriting the names of the flag. And we do that at at every camp. Everybody takes a turn doing it. So you're all involved. And then the survivor then carries it through the night to the summit. And like you said, anybody can come on the trip. I'll make sure to also put all of the links in the show notes. Sean, there's a question I ask every guest, and that is, are there practices that have accompanied you throughout your life that have positively impacted you mentally, physically, or spiritually? And if so, would you share one or two of those with us? Absolutely. In fact, I, for the longest time, I... I, did research into it. I've mentioned it numerous times here. We've talked about it. Core values. Looked at and I've taken a number of core value assessments where I write down my top five personal core values, what means most to me. And that's where they all stop. I've actually, I've taken it a step further and I, I've put together a program called the Big Hill Challenge. You can just go to thebighillchallenge.com. The first step is taking a personal core values assessment. And I do that every three weeks. Because I've, I, like I said, I developed it and it has a list of 60 core values. You write down 10 that most resonate with you, that mean the most to you. And then you go a little bit further. This is where I think it really opens eyes. 
where you rate on a scale of one to 10, how you're actually living that value. So if I wrote down in the very first time I ever did this, I wrote down family as one of my top 10 core values. One of my personal core values is family. But I was living that value at a three. If family means so much to me, why is why am I not putting energy and attention into it? So by doing that with 10, 10 of the most significant values of my life, I now know exactly where I want to start focusing my energy and attention in every decision I make by utilizing mindfulness. And this is also in the program too. Mindfulness, the compound effect triggers fear and anxiety. But by utilizing mindfulness and knowing where I want to increase, those help me make decisions throughout everything I do in my life. Because if they don't resonate with those core values and if they don't help me increase how I'm living one of those core values, why do it? Because it, because if you think about it, it means nothing to me. Why am I going to put energy and attention into something that I don't care about? That's an excellent tool for a roadmap. I love that. Thank you for sharing that, Sean. Absolutely. Yeah. And people who want to connect with you, find out more about you and your mission and your life, where can they best do that? That's the easiest question you've asked me so far. <laughs> Just go to seanswarner.com, S-E-A-N, like Sean Connery, the proper spelling, S-E-A-N, Swarner, just like the Warner Brothers, but slap an S on the front, seanswarner.com. Sean, this has been a really great and profound conversation. Thank you so much for making time for us today. It was a true pleasure to speak with you. Ah, pleasure's all mine. Thank you for the opportunity. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution.